when they go online, what happens is that very slowly they get sucked into these tunnels. You, you know, they almost fall down these rabbit holes of information, counter-information, disinformation that feeds them a certain worldview. And after a while, after this long process, they start to believe it. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me today is Angela Saini, an independent British science journalist. She presents science programs on BBC Radio, and her writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Times, Science, and Wired, among others. And she has won a number of national and international science journalism awards. And she's here today with me to talk about her latest book, Superior, The Return of Race Science. Angela, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be on your program. So you opened the book in the British Museum, uh, and I'm interested to hear why you were drawn to start this particular book, a book about the intersection of science and racism in that particular space. Well, you know, I always write the introduction at the end. <laughs> so I always know, um, have a very clear idea in my head of everything, all my ideas and exactly what I wanted to say. And then I think about the best possible way of summarizing it. And when um, I was writing Superior, I just kept remembering all the many, many times I'd been to the British Museum. I used to be a member of the museum for a while. So I went there a lot. But right throughout my life. I've been there. And um, what always astounded me was that from all over the world, all these beautiful objects, these wonderful treasures, I mean, some of them really one of a kind, like the Rosetta Stone. Um, there are a totem poles from North America. There are uh, Easter Islands. There's an Easter Island statue. I mean, some of the most incredible objects from around the world are in London in this one place. And, uh, you know, on the surface, it just feels like, wow, this is the most successful museum in the world. But there's a reason for that. And the reason is colonialism. It's because of power. And Superior really, at its heart, although it is a science book and it is about race, is ultimately a story of power, how power um, manifests itself in our everyday lives, controls how we behave and controls also how research is done. And I wanted, and for me, the British Museum was a perfect example of that. There's um, uh, two particular quotes in this section that uh, spoke to me that I, I've sort of highlighted out. The first um, one was, all visitors have the same curious desire to know who their ancestors were, to know what their people achieved. We want to see ourselves in the past, forgetting that everything in the museum belongs to us all as human beings. We are each products of it all. But of course, that's not the lesson we take away, because that's not what the museum was designed to tell us. I really like this quote because I felt that urge in the British Museum. I've been there a few times, but also lots of museums in where I'm drawn to in that space, the place I instantly go, the ones I prioritize, in particular in places like the British Museum, where it's just impossible to see it all in one go. Yeah, and we all do that, I think. My parents were um, grew up in India. They're British citizens now. But um when you have that kind of heritage from a different place and you're in a space finally in which that heritage is represented and there are not that many spaces like that, then you want to see um, yourself represented there or your history represented there. And they, so you're drawn to those spaces. And I completely understand that people want to go to the bits of the museum that they can most relate to. But I think we forget in the process of doing that in – what is essentially an exercise in understanding our identity, that our identity is not just a product of the places where our ancestors came from. It is fed by lots of different things. I mean, technological process, progress, science, technology, all these things, culture, art, all of them are shared by cultures, but they're also, they also feed into each other. So, for example, British culture, and this is a very difficult thing, I think, in this country because there is no one British culture, I think. I mean, we can, through stereotypes, distill it down to certain qualities. People will say different things. You know, people will say it's about fish and chips and democracy or whatever. But, um, British culture is actually a mix of lots of different things and lots of different places in the world because that was the British experience, the British experience, not just of empire, but also of um, 
exploration and you take these things and they become part of you. I mean, the mobile phone, wherever it was invented and wherever it was developed, is used by everyone in the world. It's part of all our cultures now. Writing and language is part of all our cultures. Um, so to kind of compartmentalize culture and art and science and say this belongs to these people and this belongs to those people, I think is dangerous because it takes us away from the truth, which is that we are all human and we are all products of this and we have a shared experience. I think as well, um, the other quote that I've pulled from this section of the book that really resonated with me quite strongly and is something I've heard articulated in different ways before, which was the past is built of the things we choose to remember. And the choose there is so important for us all to remember is that the things in museums and the way we tell stories about our pasts, whether it's a personal past, whether it's uh, the past of our country, uh, the past of our region of the world, or the past of the world in general is, is a choice. It's a curation of, of things that happened. Mm. And I think that is kind of where I landed after a lot of my research. And I just kept thinking to myself, why do we keep going back to this idea of race? Why are we obsessed with ancestry and where we came from? And really, it's just, this is all about origin stories. It's about nationalism, building up a sense of who we are. Um, and maybe that's a natural human desire that we need to have a people and understand our place and um, what brought us to this place. And also, we have to remember the nation state in itself is a fairly recent invention. It only exists in as much as we have constructed it. And in order to maintain that idea of a nation state as distinct from another nation state, we need these stories in a way. Because otherwise, what, what does it mean? It doesn't really mean anything. It's just a boundary. It's just a geographical boundary. If it is to mean anything at all, it has to include these other elements and in creating these other elements or this sense of nationhood we use these origin stories um, to build an attachment to that place um, and we do it in lots of different ways there are of course origin myths and creation myths but um, I think also we see these days this kind of uh, in ethnic nationalism, this idea that there is some biological attachment that certain people have, that to be Indian, for instance, is to be brown, to be European is to be white, um, these kind of hard genetic biological uh, definitions of what it means to be from a place, when in fact those places, um, those biological features that we attach to these places were never hard and fast. I mean, even here in Britain, and you would think that Britain, you know, with the history that it has, has always been a white country. So this is something you often hear that Britain is white. Um, you know, this is what it means to be British. Well, in fact, the very first hunter-gatherers who lived in Western Europe, or right across Western Europe, including in Britain, we now know most probably had dark skin, so dark that by today's standards, they would be considered black. So this idea of indigeneity, what it means to be from a place and belong to that place, really belongs to the place and time that you're in. So when we think about the past and we construct our ideas about the past, we are using, um, in every sense, reference points from today in order to be able to do that. And as we know, the more research we do, whether that is archaeological, historical research or genetic research, our ideas about the past very rarely map onto the facts. I think for many of us, probably without really thinking about it too deeply, consider the ideas of race or the idea of race to be an old idea, um, maybe something that's so ingrained and obvious and, and almost instinctual for us in the here and now that it, it therefore must be a very, very old concept. So when was the idea of race as we see it today kind of created? Well, it's hard to pin down. We can't really know in what ways people thought about human difference in the ancient past. I'm sure people recognize human difference. Um, but the idea of race that we have now, the categories that we use and the way that we subdivide people, um, is fairly recent. So it was around the 
17th, 18th centuries that um, coinciding with the European Enlightenment that researchers, Western European researchers started to categorize humans in the same way that they were categorizing uh, the rest of the natural world. So these taxonomies that they had for plants and flowers, for flora and fauna, they also extended to humans. And often it was very arbitrary, not least because they had very little understanding of the rest of the world and how people lived and what they looked like. And in fact, even uh, Carl Linnaeus, who is famous for drawing up many of these taxonomies, um, included categories for feral humans and monster-like humans because in popular myth, these people existed even though he had never seen them. Um, so a lot of it was about, like I said, it was arbitrary, but it, it, some of it was just imagination, you know, based on very superficial characteristics sometimes not even things that anyone had really observed but just guessed might be out there so um today when we think about race and it feels so tangible to us and we feel that when we fill out the census form we know exactly what we're doing that when we tick the box caucasian or asian or whatever box we tick that this is some kind of biological entity well in fact these lines were always fuzzy they always changed i mean throughout the 18th and 19th centuries people came up with all kinds of categories sometimes by color um, sometimes there were three or four sometimes there were five or six sometimes there were hundreds or thousands um, because this is how human difference works and the way i like to boil it down is people say to me how can race be a social construct when we know that human difference is there and we can see that difference and the way i explain it is i am more closely related to my parents and my sisters genetically i have a slightly weaker relationship than to my cousins and my grandparents a slightly weaker one still to my ex my further extended family a weaker one again to my community so historically, people have tended to live near kin. And so this genetic relationship to the people around them gets weaker and weaker and weaker the further out you go from the kind of community to the village level to the town level, the state, the nation, the continent. At the continental level, it is so weak as to almost become meaningless. You know, there is hardly any kind of um, commonality. There is no commonality. In fact, there are no race genes. You can't scan someone's genome and say what race they are it's only by comparing large groups of people that sometimes you can find some average statistical uh, commonality at the very edges of the genome so not even in general at the very edges of the genome um, so this so the reason people say that this race is a social construct and this is what scientists say so however much people may dispute this the scientific consensus is that race is a social construct and the reason for that is so where we draw these lines um, is really up to us and this is why in the history of race science nobody has been able to pin down how many races there are because um, one because of the fuzziness in these categories and secondly because um, it's really up to them and we can still do this. If we wanted to, someone could come along and say, this is where I'm going to draw the boundaries now. And these, this is how I'll, I will define race. And this is how it has always been. The challenge we have, of course, is that it's not necessarily the act alone of drawing the boundaries. It's once we've drawn the boundaries, it's all of the understanding or attempts to understand what actually differentiates those things and to kind of try and justify the drawing of those boundaries on a, on a gradient. And inevitably, once we get into that, it also leads to politics, because if there's difference between people, then there's uh, this human instinct to look at some sort of difference and figure out, well, if they're different, which is better. Yeah, and this is um, really the only reason why race has survived as an idea, I think, is because even though it's so clearly arbitrary, even though it has such little biological meaning, especially in the way we use it, in the categories we commonly use today, I mean, j just for example, every country has different categories. So that in itself undermines the idea that race is somehow biological. But um the only reason it survived and was so popular and powerful as an idea is because it served these uh, political ideas about who we are. It served these hierarchies. So even during the Enlightenment, there are many philosophers who believed that humans could be divided up into groups and not just that they could be divided, but that there were um, hierarchical relationships between these groups. And of course, they placed white 
upper class male Europeans at the top. They placed women below and they placed other races below. And this idea served um, not just social injustice within countries, it served slavery, it served colonialism, genocide. Some of the worst atrocities of recent human history have been served by this scientific scientific idea that racial hierarchies exist in nature. Um, it's been hugely damaging and it's only really in the middle of the 20th century after the Holocaust that people started to turn their backs on it, that scientists finally said, actually now we can see this for what it is and how dangerous it is and there is no value in using these categories anymore. There definitely is, um, and I think we often forget that a lot of what we see as modern racism is also tied up in ideas of evolution, the idea of trying to justify a particular race as being inherently stronger or weaker or better or um, not as good is also tied quite closely to uh, an idea and theory that is so close to science and and, and is where a lot of modern science flows from and is still in itself uh, in places a weirdly controversial idea that not everyone jumps on board with, which is the idea of evolution. And mm -hmm. that whole theory is about how things improve as they change and mutate. So you can mm -hmm. see where instantly looking at that theory, you just get pulled to thinking about mm -hmm. people in that way. And we should think mm -hmm. about people in evolution, but there's an urge to look at the people in front of you and try and figure out where everyone currently <laughs> is on the evolutionary ladder, which is not even the right metaphor. <laughs> Yeah, it's a dangerous way of thinking about it. Even improvement mm. as a way of thinking about evolution is not a scientifically sensible way to think about it because then it implies that there are some species that are better than others, <laughs> some breeds that are better than others. And that's not actually the case. Evolution adapts people or adapts species to their environments. So we are all best suited for the environments that we're, we're in. There is no species that is better than another. We're all just, you know, we're all, we all just took the same journey in order to get to where we are in order to better equip us for the environments that we're in. But even this idea, um, gets manipulated by scientific racists in order to imply, for instance, as you still hear from white supremacists, this idea that wrapped up in whiteness is uh, an innate evolutionary superiority because, for, for example, Europeans had to adapt to harsher conditions than people who live in warmer climates. You still hear that. <laughs> this is why the West has won as though history is over and the West will always have won and nobody else will ever win, which again is being, um, which is an idea that is already being given to a lie by the fact that other countries do so well and they are doing so well and India and China and Japan and other places <laughs> are already putting pay to, uh, to that kind of white supremacist idea that only Europeans can succeed or be successful. This is a habit you see right throughout the sciences, and I still see it now, is this habit of looking at the world around us and assuming that the world looks the way it does because of some biological process, because uh, this is how nature shakes out. Forgetting that history has been so much more complicated than that. You know, Europe wasn't always the most successful region in the world. <laughs> China was very successful, you know, countries in the Middle East. Um, there were empires elsewhere in the world before there were empires in based in Europe. Um, but we have this kind of vision, and I think that this is one of the flaws with thinking about the world in an evolutionary way, that somehow history is taking a course and it has led us to this, and now history is over. And the final winners have been decided and those final winners are somehow Europeans. <laughs> that is not how it works. There are many different reasons why the world looks the way it does, historical, social, cultural reasons. And it is a mistake for scientists to kind of take this snapshot of the society that they live in and assume that that somehow is nature. That in the same way that they might look at animals in a zoo and observe them and uh, summarize their nature as chimpanzees or as lemurs or whoever they're observing. This um, 
has led to so many mistakes in scientific research. It still does. And not just in race, also in gender. You know, Charles Darwin did this. Darwin looked at the world around him, or the society around him, Victorian society, and decided that women were the intellectual inferiors of men. And why did he decide that? Because as he wrote, they weren't attaining what men were attaining. They weren't achieving the same things, forgetting that Victorian middle-class women didn't have the vote. They didn't have the same education. They didn't have access to university. They were barred from the professions. What the hell were they supposed to be attaining under this kind of system? And in fact, people who argued against Darwin at the time, women who argued against him, said, don't compare people until our opportunities are the same. Um, and this is a trap we still fall into today. I still see scientists making this mistake. I mean, science is, it's first and foremost, a human pursuit. It's a lofty one. And I think oftentimes it is a worthy one, but it's still a human one driven and explored by flawed people. I mean, it's it's possible for well-meaning people to use science to boost both lofty, well-meaning ideas, but also terribly false ideas or terrible ideas. And both can be boosted falsely. Yes, and we have to remember that mistakes happen when we don't see the context of the ideas that we have. Um, so, for example, in Darwin's case, he wasn't thinking about history and culture and the politics of his time when he was making these pronouncements about women. Um, and we are all guilty of that because we are all raised in a certain way. We are all raised with a set of ideas um, with a certain perspective on the world. And that perspective will shape the theories that we have, the ideas that we believe, uh, the questions that we ask. Um, and this is this for me is why it's so important to have representation in science, not just for the sake of equity, which is a good enough reason in itself, but also if we know that every single person has a different perspective, then it's far better for scientific research to have a variety of perspectives than to just have that of one group of people. We know the mistakes that come from having just one set of people doing research, and those mistakes include race science. Yeah, I think one of the things we forget is is something that you, you mentioned in that, which is it's not just about how we interpret the answers we get when we're pursuing science, it's also in what questions we ask. And those questions are so heavily biased. What we think of as interesting, what we think of as worthy of asking a question about is so tied up in who we are as people, where we come from, what our social milieu is, where our politics lie. All of that stuff is all wrapped up in what is a worthy question. And that doesn't have to necessarily be a problem for science. You know, we are not robots. We can't um, be, you know, perfectly objective about the world and neither is it appropriate to be when we're talking about human behavior because human behavior is not just a genetic quantity it is a product of the of the societies and the cultures that we live in we are inherently social cultural creatures if you lock a child in a room and they don't have any of that cultural input any of that love or care or society around them they will not be a a human being. They will not be a fully rounded human being. They will be stunted in so many different ways because we need that. That is something intrinsic to our species. So if we're going to understand who we are in all our complexity and all our changing complexity, then science needs to accept that not only are we human, but scientists also are human. And to answer this question, we need not just biology, but we also need to understand society and culture and the myriad ways in which they work together to create who we are. And the fact is, whatever we think about human nature now may not be true in 10 or 20 years time, because human nature is intrinsically social. I think one of the things that is an important takeaway from your book is there's a, a th an, an easy trap to fall into for people like myself who love science, who pursue science, who are fascinated by it, in assuming that the quote unquote harder the science is, the more rigorous, the better it is, the, the more factually it can explain the world to us. And it's important that we're reminded that that's flawed thinking, that the social sciences, the so-called soft sciences, as some people label them, are different, and they often 
force us to grapple with complex ideas that can't so easily be tested in the same way that some hard sciences can be. But they are also so vital in understanding how the world works, in particular when we get into uh, people, (laughs) anything Mm. to do with people. Yes, we are complex. And if there's anything that characterizes us as a species, I would say it's individual difference. We are so unique and special as individuals. And to capture that in some kind of grand unified theory of human nature is is practically impossible. We can't do it. Um, and this really is what science has been trying to do for the last 150 years is summarize who we are, distill down human nature to a few simple rules. And always it fails. And the reason it always fails is because, like I said, we are not these simple creatures. We are the products of everything around us. And because that everything around us is always changing, and even especially now with the internet and with AI and, you know, these these complex societies that we live in, who we are is, is completely unpin-downable. Um, and to understand why we're unpin-downable and the complexity of it, we need the social sciences. I'm sometimes stunned, actually, at geneticists who write about race and completely ignore these aspects, you know, who write about race. as though it's just a genetic question that just by understanding the genetics, you can get to the heart of this question. Well, you can't. Race itself was a social idea, a political idea. The categories we use are social and political categories. The way race and racism play out in our lives is a product of politics and culture. So how can you treat it as though it's just a genetic question? That's not ever how it has worked. Um, So I think there needs to be more synergy between the sciences and the social sciences and an understanding that you cannot understand humans unless you understand every bit of us. You cannot distill us down. Um, and I think perhaps science is, is coming towards that now. I do see amongst uh, psychologists and neuroscientists and uh, geneticists a, a willingness to engage with disciplines outside their own and see that happening. But I just don't think it happens enough. And perhaps that's a product of science education. You know, I studied engineering. And when I studied engineering, the only moment in that four years that I was expected to think about the context of what I was doing was one essay I was asked to write on kind of the social repercussions of some piece of uh, engineering technology. And that is not how it should be. We should understand whatever you're researching, you should understand the social and historical context of it, understand where those ideas come from. So the subtitle of your book is The Return of Race Science. Uh, but upon reading, the actual takeaway message here is that there isn't really a return because it never went away. Yeah. There, there has been a clear continual through line of science undertoned by racist ideas and motivations for quite a long time. Um, so did you choose this subtitle knowingly, knowing that return is not really the right word? Well, I think a lot of people imagine it had gone away after the Second World War that, you know, race science was not a problem anymore. Scientific racism was not in any way a threat that if it existed, it was just on the margins. And to some extent, at various points after the Second World War, that has been true. The reason I use the word return is because now in the current politics we're in, it's experiencing a kind of resurgence um in ways that we haven't seen before. So on the one hand, things like DNA ancestry testing, which has inadvertently reinforced this idea that race is somehow be biologically meaningful, but also um, in alt-right politics, far-right politics, populism, the rise of ethnic nationalism, you see these ideas, sometimes 19th century ideas, you know, they will reach way back in order to find ideas that support their ideologies are um, thanks to the internet having a moment right now Um, and I hope that moment doesn't last but um, it's it's kind of a symptom I argue of a wider rise in pseudoscience so you see for example the return of flat earthers climate change denial anti-vaxxers you know Britain where I live has just 
lost its measles-free status because anti-vaxxers are on the rise again. So we see the return of um, some very discredited, old-fashioned, dangerous ideologies, and race science is one of them. You very well in the book kind of lift this hidden thread out. Um, I think most people who are interested in, in the topic of understanding race science and in particular how it's, how it's causing us problems today can easily trace it up until around the Second World War. And at that point, because of what happened in the Second World War in Nazi Germany and with the Holocaust, there was a very strong pushback, uh, against science that looked at or tried to justify uh, ideas of race. Um, and uh, things kind of went underground. They sort of disappeared for a little while. And uh, as you mentioned, it seems like the internet is allowing some of that and just the current politics is allowing some of that to resurface. So it was quite interesting in the book to hear you talk about the through line of that that is was much harder to see, the kind of bit where it dipped below uh, the ocean for a bit. Uh, it was still there. It was still pushing along. Um, but it was, it was difficult for the average person to see. You had to kind of know where it was or be actively looking for it or to just be unfortunate enough to kind of stumble onto it uh, yeah. for about, would you say about 40 years, 40, 50 years or so? Yes, it was there. And sometimes it would bubble up into the mainstream, for example, thanks to people like William Shockley, who was a physicist, um, electrical engineer, actually, I think at Stanford or Berkeley. And he was one of the big scientific racists of his time in the 1960s. Um, he believed that black women should be sterilized because their babies would be inherently um, weaker than white babies or less desirable than white babies. There was Arthur Jensen also in the 1960s who argued that black Americans had innately lower IQs than white Americans. There are still people making those arguments. So occasionally you would see it bubble up. Um, the bell curve was another moment of this bubbling up and then sinking back down again. Um, but uh, by and large, this community, which you're right, ha had been nurtured since the Second World War. There was plenty of funding for them from certain political actors who were, for example, committed to segregation uh, or apartheid or were against racial mixing. So they were funding these these scientists or academics at the edges of their field. Um, but they were kind of a closed network. So they were communicating with each other. They had their own networks, their own, you know, they would know each other and they would meet each other, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to access them. With the internet, that has all changed. They've really kind of been able to spread their tentacles out, reach out to people who share their um, political opinions about the world. And really what they're doing is pushing a political agenda because this idea of scientific racism really serves the political agenda that inequality is natural. Racial inequality is natural. And there is a lot of political capital to be drawn from that idea. Um, because if you can make that point, then society doesn't need to change. It doesn't need to treat people better. It doesn't need to be fairer or um, better because this is just how things are. You know, this is how things shake out. And there are still, there have always been people who have nurtured that, uh, racist idea. But the internet has made it much, much easier for them to connect to each other, connect to these ideas. And this is why you see a proliferation of these ideas online. You even see these kind of fake or pseudoscientific journals popping up online, propagating these ideas. And if you don't know them, if you don't know the characters within this network, which I do, then it's very easy to get drawn into this, get sucked into it, the, the same way that flat earthers can sometimes start off not being flat earthers, but then get sucked into this world online. And then before they know it, they believe something which 10 years ago, they might have just, you know, never have dreamed of believing. But it's almost like a process of indoctrination. This is how it works. I mean, I've been, I was speaking recently to a friend of mine who works in uh, counter extremism for the government. And he was telling me the way that people become extremists, whether it's Islamists or whether it's far-right extremists, is that very often they start off as fairly reasonable people, but with a kind of curiosity about 
a certain ideology or a certain idea. And when they go online, what happens is that very slowly they get sucked into these tunnels. You, you know, they almost fall down these rabbit holes of information, counter-information, disinformation that feeds them a certain worldview. And after a while, after this long process, um, they start to believe it. And their minds get kind of warped and twisted into a certain way. And it's very difficult to draw people out of that once they're inside it. And this is one of the issues uh, with the online world right now is that we see people getting sucked into these kind of strange, odd ideologies and become re becoming really, really attached to them. And then it's impossible almost to draw them out because they have found their people online and that's all they listen to. They're within their echo chamber and they will not get out. Um, so scientific racism, I'd say today is a bit like that. Although there is a core of people who've always been part of this and have always been committed to it, what they're doing is slowly radicalizing people online to share that same worldview. Anytime I think about this, I think about my friend, uh, David, and what I think of as the danger of his reasonable voice. Um, we have a long standing joke in our friend circle that uh, our friend David can say anything at all. And as long as he says it in his reasonable voice, uh, people will believe him. And he's proven true more often than not, because he's got a way of delivering a piece of information. Uh, and it's difficult to put your finger on exactly what it is, but it sounds entirely entirely reasonable. You're like, yep, that makes sense to me. I get that. I understand that must be right. And it's complete bollocks. Um, and I think that's such an important thing that in particular in the world of the internet is that the the danger of the reasonable voice is so easy to fall into. It's, it's a tough thing because Unless you're an expert in a certain area or have the time to gain enough expertise that you're able to tell the accurate science, the good science, the rigorous science, the science that's asking the right question from the opposite, what is one to do but believe the reasonable voice? Yeah, we have to, I mean, we desperately need to exercise our critical faculties, every single one of us, because frankly, we're all being played by someone or another. Um, and this is very deliberate. And one of the strategies of those who seek to device, divide us is to create echo chambers on both sides of the political spectrum. So whether you're on the left or the right, you have to be mindful of people who are trying to manipulate you in order to sow division in society. Um, it's not that one side has it right and one side has it wrong. That's not the case at all. There are arguments on all sides, which are very, very complex, um, and we need to address that. Scientific racism belongs, by and large, to the far right, um, but trust me, there are people trying to play you. And if you think you're not being played and that somehow your views are the correct ones, I, I can promise you that's not the case. <laughs> Someone somewhere is pulling the levers. Um, and it's very difficult to exercise your critical faculties online. In order for me to now know when I read a paper, whether it's scientific racist bunkum or not is because I spent years investigating this network of people. I know every single name inside this group. I know every single publication. And so I can very easily, when I look at a paper, I can know, I know who that guy is and I know where he comes from. I know he has no academic affiliation. I know he's uh, been ousted by his university or he is a known white supremacist. And that's why I can recognize these things so quickly but not everybody's going to do that <laughs> you know people haven't done all that research that I have done to know exactly who to trust and who not to trust within this little field within this small community of people and that's a problem this is the frustration I feel sometimes is that people send me papers I mean just last night there was a group of uh, scientists in the US um, that were sending me this new journal that's appeared online called Psych which is um, a kind of an open access, open publishing journal. And they were like, this doesn't look right, Angela. There's something dodgy going on here. And I was like, yeah, just look at these names, all these names, every single one of them. And they're like, who, who are these people? I was like, I know, but you don't know yet. Um, and you desperately want to explain to people everything that is inside your head. So they can just as easily recognize the BS as you can. But it's... Um, 
It's really tough. And just think that is happening in every single field. Every single field has its own particular group of nutcases and crazy things going on. Um, every single ideology, every single political group has its own particular group of people you can trust and sources you can trust and ones that you can't. And we can't be that well informed to know everything. I want to um, talk about uh, a particular example in the book, because I think it's a great example of not the extreme sides that are once you know the signs are easy to spot, but something a lot more subtle that science can do or that people where people can bring in racial ideas into science. Uh, and I want to talk about the Human Genome Diversity Project, um, because on its surface, it seemed to have a very laudable goal to better understand human migration. Um, but there was a lot of controversy about this project. Uh, can you talk us through it a little bit? You mean the Human Genome Project? Yeah, the Human Genome yeah. Diversity Project. Sorry. Um, well, it was... Um it was a kind of failed project in a way with good intentions, I suppose, but not at all well executed uh, or well thought out. Um, so around the time that the Human Genome Project was happening, there were a group of population geneticists. And we have to understand also the history of population genetics. So this is a field that really emerged out of old style eugenics. So after the Second World War, when eugenics labs had to kind of close down or change, a lot of these old eugenicists became the geneticists. That's not to say they were all uh, badly intentioned, uh, because eugenics was a very mainstream, acceptable field at the beginning of the 20th century. It's only after what the Nazis did that it really became discredited. Um, so it was around the 1930s that people started to question it. Um, and um, so population genetics is really a way of thinking about human difference that feels more scientific because it's looking at genetics rather than skin color or facial features or things like that. Um, and in some ways it is because it's molecular, but in some ways it still kind of is attached to old 19th century ideas about how the human race can be divided. So while there will be different categories used by population geneticists, there will also be categories like African and European and categories actually that don't have a huge amount of biological meaning, but because they have social or political meaning, they still use them. So there are problems there anyway in the language and the frameworks being used within this scheme of thinking about human difference in terms of genetics. What the Human Genome Diversity Project wanted to do in the 1990s was um, say, okay, so we're sequencing the human genome, but uh, what about all the diversity in the genome? We know that there are different groups of people and they have different, um, they have slight differences within their genomes. Why don't we take DNA samples from each of them and study those differences. Now, the problem with this, obviously, is that how do you choose which groups you're talking about? How do you draw boundaries around groups of people, especially knowing, as people already did then, that there is a lot of fuzziness around those boundaries? In fact, that fuzziness has only been reinforced since then. You know, there is no group in the world that is completely cut off from all other groups around them, you know, that is genetically unique. There may be, like I said, average statistical differences between groups and that those differences may be more pronounced in groups that historically have been a little bit more isolated, which is why you get things like Tay-Sachs in certain Jewish communities, in the Parsi community in India, which is a kind of closed community, you see higher rates of a certain type of cancer. So you do get these pockets, but they're not discreet in any way. They're very fuzzy. Um, so in that sense, already the project faced the charge of racism. Um, but also on top of that, um, indigenous groups, and we have to remember again, historically indigenous groups have been exploited and sometimes um, experimented on by 
uh, scientists in the past in very damaging ways. They were very nervous about this project because what this project was saying was we will particularly go to indigenous groups. You know, isolated indigenous groups are the ones that we really want because they will be somehow more genetically distinct from the rest of us. Um, so it's problematic on so many different levels. And because of all the political problems around it, um, activists kind of denouncing the project uh, funders really didn't fund it enough as it needed as it needed and it really died a kind of slow death but i have to say out of that we now get dna ancestry testing so today's projects for example there's this project the people of the british isles there's lots of projects around the world that try and capture the genetic diversity of populations um so they have done it they have done what the project failed to do but also in uh, DNA ancestry testing which in some ways came out of this idea um, we see a resurgence in the idea of biological race because if it's possible to DNA ancestry test someone then how can race not be real and with DNA testing, of course, what it might tell you, I think quite often when you get the reports, it tells you broadly where your ancestors were probabilistically more likely to come from, or I guess what your, gen what your DNA has most in common with, um, which is a question potentially more of, ge of geography. But as soon as you bring in geography, our brains instantly go to race as well. Yeah, and actually people don't realize this, but DNA ancestry testing, even though they use the word ancestry, is not actually linking you to your ancestors directly. It's not as though they have a bank, a biobank of your ancestors and they're comparing your genome to theirs. What they're doing is comparing your DNA to the DNA of living people who have also had that test done. And then seeing if there's any kind of average statistical similarities between them. And like I said before, at the very edges of the genome, because by and large, you know, more than 95% of genomes are the same of all people. In fact, the human species is more homogeneous than chimpanzees. We show less diversity within our species than chimpanzees. So we're very, very similar as a species. What they're looking at is statistically some kind of marginal average commonality as I said before because we have tended to live near kin so it's possible to do this because in some very very loose way you might be related you know many 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 times removed from the people some of the people they are testing um, so what they're doing is telling you about your relationship to living people not people who lived a very long time ago. <laughs> and the reason they call it ancestry testing is because historically people have tended to live in one place. And so they think that they can pin you down to a certain region based on where the majority of the people that you have a commonality with tend to live. Um, but even this is very fuzzy. I mean, I have always been skeptical and scathing, if anything, of DNA ancestry tests. But for a recent program I was making, the producers had me undergo one of these tests. And um, it told me I was 96% South Asian. I mean, how fuzzy is that? I know where my family are from. They're from North India, Punjab. They've been there for a really long time. And yet it could only tell me I was 96% South Asian. South Asia is huge. So, that, you know, that's how vague and fuzzy these things are. One of the things that I really appreciated about reading this book was um, that you dove into the kind of gray zone when we start to get into things like population science um, and the discussions of human variation, which in some places are are just kind of word replacement for race and racial difference. But there's uh, some people there who are trying to pursue science that is very controversial and are trying to do it to the best of their ability without bias. And you do spend some time talking about the difficulty of working in science on in that borderland um, that is fraught with politics from both sides and that different groups of people are looking at either to potentially hungrily take or to dismiss instantly. And it was interesting to read you talking to those people and you trying to work through whether or not that science was of value? Well, it's very difficult because um, 
I firmly believe in academic freedom. If you can get your work kind of approved, uh, funded, peer-reviewed, published in a reputable journal, replicated, then you should be able to do whatever kind of research you want. I have no problem with that. Um, but the questions that we ask and the approaches that we take are as I was saying before, heavily mediated by the societies that we live in. And um, this is why in, in the US in particular, you see a lot of people looking for racial differences because the US is such a heavily racialized society. I mean, people are really obsessed with this idea that racial difference might be real, that we can look for it in the genome. And they do. They try to. In Particularly in medical research, there is a huge industry, <laughs> billions of dollars poured into this question. Um, but the bigger question is, when people are looking for these differences, how do they define race? Given that we know these definitions are quite arbitrary, how do you define it? And there was a wonderful piece of research done by Duena Fulwiley that I talk about in Superior, um, in which she asked researchers who were using race as a variable in their work every day using it as, as a variable. And these were well-meaning, you know, anti-racist, multicultural group of researchers who were doing, as they were, as far as they were concerned, really good work in trying to understand um, human diversity, for instance, or how different genetic uh, features play out in different populations. And not one of them could tell her what race was. Not a single person could define it for her. And I dare any scientist to, do, to be able to define it because it is indefinable. That is the nature of it. Um, and this is a problem. How can scientists in good faith use race as a variable if they don't understand what it means as a variable? It's just impossible. Um, and, you know, this is kind of the conclusion or the concluding remark I leave in Superior is use race if you want in your research. By all means, use it. But you better understand what it is. If you can't understand what it is, then you have to ask yourself why you're using it. This section and all the sections of the book that sort of I can hear you grappling with some of these ideas from a worthiness perspective. I found those lingering with me the most and the question of, is there something worthwhile to be found in studying group and population difference that is worth the danger of what I perceive to be a slippery slope? And I, I hate slippery slope arguments. And <laughs> in me, there is that conflict of, of somewhere there is something that we have to be so careful about, but also I don't know that it's good for us to completely turn away from it because there might be something valuable there. And I would hate to miss something valuable out of fear, but it's mm. such a dangerous, slippery slope. Well, we have to remember, it's not fear that prevents certain people from doing this research mm. and that people are doing this research. We have population genetics, so it's not as though this research isn't being done. A lot of people are doing it. But, um, you know, the reason that it is not generally that we generally don't within biology think about people in races is because it's not seen as worthwhile because race is a social construct and we have to go back to that repeatedly because it's not a political point this is a scientific point mm. it's like saying um well we should be studying this physiology of aliens why isn't nobody doing it well we don't have any aliens to study you know we if something doesn't exist then you, do, you don't need to study it. You know, there's no value in studying it. And this is why biologists still don't use it, even though they may use it in subtle ways because they can't help it. The reason that race is not used as a, as so overtly within genetics is because it's seen as a social construct. So this is complicated because we have on the one hand people invoking race unintentionally within the sciences. And then we have other scientists saying it's completely inappropriate to use this. And then we have another group of people saying, um, oh, but there's value in this and we're missing out the value because we're not studying it. Well, that is not the reason things look the way they do. 
at all. Um, so like I said before, I'm all for academic freedom. If you can get funded, approved, published in a reputable journal, peer reviewed, you go for it. You do, you ask whatever question you want, but you have to understand why you're asking the question that you are and exactly why you're using the variables that you're using and what the definition of those variables are. Because if you're not able to do that, then what you're doing, frankly, is not scientific. Reading through some of the uh, science on uh, that's looking at a genetic basis for cognitive ability, so looking basically at the question of heritability of intelligence. Um, it's it's so interesting, and I think there's something in there that is fascinating and and worthy to look at. But drilling into it, it's also so easy to make assumptions there about about how much of it is cognitively heritable um, and forgetting for a second all of the social implications and just focusing too much because science is so good at stripping something down to something that it can focus on and try and understand and forgetting that as soon as you strip something off, you're missing an important feature of it. And you might be stripping off so much that what you're left with when combined back, even though it might be kind of interesting it's like a small piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Intelligence is a, is an interesting thing. We know that there is most probably a heritable component to intelligence. We know that there is certainly a genetic component to intelligence that is not necessarily heritable, but could be. Um, and that, you know, people individuals have different capacities. They have different capacities, different capabilities and different skills and talents. Every single one of us, you know, we're not all born blank slates and there is no scientist now um, who says that we are born blank slates, of course. But to go from intelligence is partly heritable and we have to understand what heritable means. Heritability means um, that the likelihood that you have inherited something uh, from your parents. And um, those measures can vary. So, for example, uh, the most hereditarian of researchers today, including some that I interviewed for the book, will say that intelligence is 50% heritable. This is still an estimate because they can't know for sure, but they will say 50%. But what they won't tell you is that that is only if you grow up in kind of good... Um, well-cared-for, well-educated circumstances. So if you're kind of a well-nourished middle-class child in a developed society, then maybe it's 50%. If you belong to the lowest socioeconomic group, that heritability rate can fall to as low as zero, in which case then the genetic component is really irrelevant here. And this is something you don't hear in the intelligence debates very much, but they will tell you. If you quiz them on it, they will tell you. So on, so first and foremost, we have to understand that when we are talking about intelligence or the heritability of intelligence, we, these things are very much subject, uh, to nutrition, to social input, to education. They are very malleable. Getting adopted into a wealthier family is associated with higher IQ. You gain IQ when you get when you get adopted into a wealthier family on average. So what does that mean? <laughs> you know, it means that IQ isn't totally a genetic, you know, a hardwired thing component. So um, that's one thing. The other thing we have to remember is that intelligence itself, IQ testing, is a field that was born of eugenics. Eugenicists invented IQ testing in order to be able to test populations and then decide who were the mentally feeble and who weren't in order to discourage and encourage certain people to breed. And even today, the intelligence community, if you look at researchers within intelligence, of course, there are very many good ones. But there are also a number of people who are known to be scientific racists, who have been shunned by their universities, who don't have academic affiliations, who go to these conferences. Some of them aren't kind of psychologists or scientists at all people like charles murray he goes he regularly goes to these intelligence conferences scientific conferences and he's a political scientist so this is a field that 
since its very inception and even now is dogged with problems, political problems, that was born of a certain worldview, IQ itself, which is, you know, the main measure that people use in order to judge intelligence, is a very uh, fuzzy measure. We also know it's heavily culturally loaded. It doesn't capture the kind of myriad ways in which intelligence manifests itself. It captures a certain type of intelligence in a certain type of people. So there are lots of um, there are lots of degrees to which we should approach intelligence research with caution and lots of reasons why we should approach it with caution. Um, but more fundamentally, to equate heritability of intelligence with the idea that there must be then group differences in intelligence is a huge mistake. You can't make that leap. Um, and even Robert Plowman, who has been described in nature as a hereditarian, um, uh, one of the leading researchers in this area, psychologist, even he said to me he sees no value at all in studying intelligence differences between racial groups because it cannot be done properly because people live in different circumstances. And as long as they live in different circumstances, whether that's cultural, educational, nutritional, in all the different ways, then you cannot compare groups. It's just such a minefield, that whole area for all of the reasons you said. Um, and I, after reading your book, uh, I just so happened to also listen to a recent Radiolab series that really deep dived into the complexity around what we think of as intelligence, and in particular, the idea of IQ, um, which I found a great compliment to reading this book and made me think a lot more deeply around some of those questions as well. Um, and we're just about out of time, but I also wanted to highlight uh, that in the book, you also talk about where um, science can be motivated and twisted by racism beyond the kind of Caucasian European uh, realm. Obviously, that's something that being English speaking, living in Britain, living, being from Canada, um, I'm particularly aware of, and that's the kind of cultural place that I'm most attuned to. Uh, but you do highlight some examples in the book outside of um, North America and Europe, where this is also a problem where science that is motivated by racist ideas is also causing problems in an entirely different cultural setting. Yeah, we have to remember that um, racism is not a problem that only belongs to one set of people. It is um, something that gets used and abused by people in power. It always comes back to power. And these power dynamics play out all over the world. So, for example, in the country where my parents were born, in India, we have the caste system. And the caste system is really a, a form of racism, um, which says that uh, everybody belongs to a certain group and you must stay within that group. And that group has a certain function in society. It's a deeply racist system. And it reinforces... Uh, essentially this racial, a uh, biological idea of, of difference, of racial difference, that groups are innately different. Uh, in China, um, we see origin myths play out within the sciences uh, when people argue that, as some researchers do, that um, the Chinese people were, are not the product of the human migrations out of Africa as we all are. Either you, your ancestors um, are from are from within Africa, or they migrated out of Africa. But we know that everybody did one of those things, you know, um, including the Chinese from genetic evidence. But they argue instead that the Chinese evolved separately from an earlier form of Homo erectus that lived in China um, millions of years ago. So that they have a kind of their origin myth then ties them very deeply to the land that they evolved there separately from everybody else um, again serving this kind of nationalist idea of Chinese identity um, so these ideas play out in ways all over the world and what we have to watch out for is the ways that those in power manipulate us using these arguments they will always do it they're still doing it and we have to watch for it um, everywhere because it's not just a phenomenon that exists in one group of people and not another. And I think as well, being aware of what ideas 
we find instantly attractive to us in a way that underlies perhaps ideas of power. Uh, for me, one of the ones in the book, but more generally is is a good reminder for me personally is the kind of status change that Neanderthals got uh, over time. They used to be the kind of, you know, broken appendage of human evolution, the bit that, you know, wasn't really worthy, it broke off and good riddance to it. And, you know, it was never going to go anywhere. And then all of a sudden, it got a bit of a dramatic makeover, because we discovered there was a lot of interbreeding that a lot of white Europeans maybe ha are more likely to have some Neanderthal DNA mm. markers. And all of a sudden, Neanderthals you know, they were actually a, a gentler species. Perhaps they could think more symbolically. Maybe they had their own language. All of a sudden, they get this slightly different facelift. We think about them in a different way. Suddenly, who knows why? I mean, scientists will deny that this they did this in any kind of overt way, that they deliberately recognized the Neanderthal ancestry uh, within Europe or within the human species and then started to change the message. Um, that's not really what happened. But what did happen is that these things coincided with each other. So the way that uh, the the statements that some scientists started to make that you saw in the press about Neanderthals and who they were <laughs> very quickly changed. Um, and that came quite hot on the foot of... Uh, scientists starting to recognize that actually there was interbreeding in the past and really this is what always happens within any kind of sphere of knowledge is that we realign um, our thoughts about the past based on whatever new evidence comes along so neanderthals actually we don't know very much about them but we recast them based on we project onto them what we would like to believe that they were. And if we are related to them, then we'd like to cast them in a better light than if we're not. And that is human nature, sadly. That is what we do. As we said before, the past is built of the things we choose to remember. Mm -hmm. Angela, it's really excellent book. And I thank you so much for spending some time with me talking about it today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. And if you want to learn more about Angela Saini or her book, Superior, The Return of Race Science, as always, you can find all those links and more in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening. and We'll talk again next week. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 